Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Den of Sin with Devin and James. I am Devin, and I'm here with my uh, my good friend since high school, James. What are you calling them out there? Cinemaniac? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I don't know if that's going to stick, but I figured it. I it, I thought of it a spur of the moment, so I don't know. <laughs> I, there might even be uh, other things labeled such a thing, but I think it's. I mean, I guess we can leave it up to our listeners. Is that? Do you want to be called Cinemaniacs? Do you think that's you know? Yeah, I think that's fair. Let us know on Twitter or Facebook <laughs> if you find us Den of Sin, spelled C-I-N, and let us know what you want to be called. But until then, we're going to call you Cinemaniacs, whether you like it or not. Exactly. So, James, we are back in our seats here in very short time because we unexpectedly hit a two-parter again, our second two-parter yes. in a row. <laughs> was not the intention. No, but, you know, the subject is Canon Film Group, and uh, with a particular attention to the films they made in the 1980s uh, under the Golan Globus leadership, and there's just so much to talk about during that period. They were releasing, I have the number here, yes, in 1986, they reached 43 films in one year. <laughs> to put that in another way, that's almost a movie every week, and uh, we'll we'll get into a little bit of the kind of the, the peak That's and the downfall insane. of Canon was happening simultaneously. And part of it is because of that output. That's right. And we'll get into some of that as we go on. There were a couple of things I wanted to mention uh, before we got too far in though. Uh, I wanted to mention last time, I, I didn't get around to it. So maybe it was a good thing that we have a second episode because it definitely deserves a shout out. But in the process of researching Canon, I of course started with the movie that you mentioned, the uh, documentary, which is called The uh, Electric Boogaloo, The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films. And uh, you can yeah. find it to stream. I think it's out of print on DVD, but there is a Blu-ray of it. And it's definitely worth your time. I also discovered in my research, there's a podcast called The Canon Canon, uh, which is uh, two guys who... Uh, oh, okay. They, they uh, performed and taught with the Upright Citizens Brigade. And so these are two really funny guys and they do kind of a similar thing to us, but they do it a lot funnier because they're from the upside right citizens brigade. And honestly, if I knew this podcast was out yeah. there, I probably, they're so good. I probably would have been in, too insecure to mention this as a topic, but I've gotten a lot yeah. of enjoyment out of it. And I, their, their names are uh, Frank Garcia Hale and Jeff Garlock. And the name of the show is the Canon Canon. So when you're done with this, they deep dive into the, individual canon movies that we're discussing here so if you don't hear your favorite movie mentioned here or uh, if you do hear your favorite movie mentioned and you want to know more about it than we have time to give uh head over to the canon canon because each one is a single movie dedicated to a single movie and they do a really great job of so oh i wanted to put that out there i'll have to check that out now i mentioned on the way out last time that i was going to try to watch 10 to Midnight, starring Charles Bronson. Did you ever get around to that one? No, this has been a pretty insane week for me. Uh, all things considered, much busier than I thought it was going to be for me. So no, I, I barely had enough time to brush my teeth. Um, but uh, <laughs> I figured this week I'll probably get around to it and then we can touch upon it on our next uh, recording. Uh, I'm assuming you watched it because that's, that's who you are. That's what you do. I did watch it. I, I'll confess I kind of watched it with one eye. Ah, okay. <laughs> Just working on some other things. I, I can say... I'd be interested in your take on it, actually, because it has elements of a slasher movie, but it's it's also a police story. Charles Bronson is a cop in this one instead of a unchecked vigilante, but that doesn't keep him from behaving as if he's a vigilante. And if you thought that Dirty Harry was out there in terms of what a police officer should or shouldn't do 
uh, in the line of business there. <laughs> what Bronson does in 10 to Midnight makes Dirty Harry look like all gray area ethically. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's all you need to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Charles Bronson is very much, you know, every character he portrays, I mean, he, he's not known specifically for nuanced ethics or morally ambiguous characters. It's, he usually plays characters that are sort of, uh, they've decided, like, not a lot of, I, at least, it, you know, in the films that come to mind immediately, uh, not a lot of uh, ro- Charles Bronson roles where he's conflicted over his decisions. So, um, he, he you says know, it, he uh, says he's usually it pretty, is. he makes up his mind. <laughs> exactly. In this film, he's talking to a, another, <laughs> I believe it's the coroner or something, and uh, the coroner was saying, uh, well, we, we found no uh, evidence on the body that uh, she was violated prior to death. And uh, Bronson says, I could have told you that. His knife is his penis. And I'm just like, that's, Charles Bronson just says it. He says the quiet parts out loud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just like I love in, it. in Murphy's Law, you know, someone's explaining to him what Murphy's Law is, which is, you know, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And he says, well, I don't know about that, but in my world, there's only one Murphy's Law. Don't fuck with Jack Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> nothing but class that bronson and he's actually a, a, a legitimately i won't say great legitimately good actor so i i still stand by my prior statement though that canon made the best chuck norris movies and the worst charles bronson <laughs> yeah I, I would be hard pressed to argue uh, against that point so now when we were going through the the canon movies uh leading up to this james did you notice how many kind of for lack of a better term elite canon movies there were like movies where uh golan and globus went after some really incredible kind of art house filmmakers to make their movies with yeah it's funny because it's that's not what when i think of the films of canon that's not necessarily what i think of them for so it is a weird little uh, corner of their uh filmography but um yeah it, it is i think it would be surprising for most people who know of their output being more of the action-oriented you know uh horror-oriented stuff that they did but uh, I'm not too familiar with the films themselves, though. They work with great directors and directors I admire and directors I'm a fan of, those I've actually seen from canon. Yeah, there are some uh, some good directors that continue to work with canon that did a few things. But I, I did want to just give some lip service here to these these films. You know, Menachem Golem especially, uh, who is, as we said before, was a writer and director himself and directed several of the canon films. They had a really solid reputation for being confirmed movie nerds and people love to talk to them about movies and that was kind of the thrill of working with canon for a lot of people was that they get to go off and make movies with people that loved movies so he was anxious to work with some of the elite in the business as well and as you said that's not really what they're known for and that's not what this podcast is going to be about as a result because uh, i really do think that this is you know chuck norris's time to shine and uh, there's really not going to be much other time to bring up Van Damme and at this extensive level. So just to give kind of a quick right. listing, just to let you know the diversity of the Canon group. Uh, they did that champion season, which was written and directed by Jason Miller, starring Robert Mitchum uh, love streams, which was John Cassavetes fool for love, which is Robert Altman Barfly, which is a uh, Mickey Rourke film about uh, Charles Bukowski. Yes. Uh, directed by yeah. Barbette Schroeder. Tough Guys Don't Dance, written and directed by Norman Mailer, who 
Uh, most people probably know more as an author than a director. Author, but, yeah. And uh, they they did King Lear with Jean-Luc Godard, uh, which featured Woody Allen. So Woody Allen's actually in a canon film. And uh, they made Pirates with Roman Polanski, which yes, I don't know if you ever saw Pirates. I'm not. No, in fact, it's uh, it's I'm curious about it. It's on YouTube if you're really curious. I have serious doubts that it will ever be wild, widely available. Uh, it was one of those video boxes as a kid. I grew up really wanting to see the movie. I don't know why I never got it. My dad was, I think I remember my dad telling me it was a bad movie and that was why I didn't get it. But realizing when I got older that the pirate on the cover was Walter Matthau just made me want to see it more to see Walter Matthau is a wild bearded pirate uh, with a peg leg. And, and it's directed by Roman Polanski. It sounds like all the elements are there, but they're not. It's incredibly boring and unfunny. It's supposed to be a comedy. And it was one of the first movies that Polanski wrote after his trouble in the United States. And I, it was not, if he was trying to fix anything about a bad reputation at that time, Pirates was not the one to do it. It's very problematic in that sense. Probably the most problematic of all of Polanski's movies, possibly more problematic than, than most of Polanski's movies, just based on uh, some of the things that he goes for to get jokes in here uh, in, involving assault. Uh, so just to put it out there, probably not worth tracking down pirates. <laughs> Good. And what's what I mean, is it as I, I mean, I, I've seen the poster art. I know it's Polanski, but I don't know really anything about the film specifically. It's, is it literally just about pirates? <laughs> it's about a pirate, and I, I don't know, I guess it's his assistant who, uh, Matthau was the lead pirate when he originally wrote it, when Polanski originally wrote it, it was for Jack Nicholson, and he was going to play the assistant himself, because uh, he was still kind of baby-faced enough to do so. He couldn't get it made right away because of the problems that he had, and he ran off to Europe, uh, as we all know, and he finally got it off the ground there, barely off the ground. And it's definitely a comedy, it's definitely him trying to create a action romp uh he, he has polanski himself has said that it, it was inspired by pirates of the caribbean so in theory it should be on the level at least as uh gore verbinski's johnny depp movie uh it's just not uh they're lost at sea on a small boat uh Matthau and his assistant or <laughs> cabin boy or whatever and uh <laughs> they they fi- you know what it, it's not even we have so much to talk about I'm just going to call it here. <laughs> Not worth it. <laughs> uh, I will say yeah, this. I think it's good. It doesn't bode well mm-hmm. for the film when Walter Matthau, who rarely does publicity for a film in the first place, was doing publicity for this film saying, I've never been in a script that I understood less. <laughs> that <laughs> was right. well, publicity I think that's, for this. <laughs> I think that's all that needs to be said then, I guess. <laughs> uh, but to, to dovetail off of the elite movies though there are a couple of sort of elite movies that do fit into the the canon style one i would say is 52 pickup which was directed by john frankenheimer and uh written by elmore leonard and stars roy scheider who's always great and his wife is played by ann margaret and the the bad guys played by john glover and i don't know if you're a fan of john glover for those who don't oh, yeah. know him yeah, he, he was kind of typecast in the 80s as an obnoxious yuppie in things like Scrooged and Gremlins 2, The New Batch. 
He's fantastic in this. Everyone should see 52 Pickup. That's, that's maybe the undiscovered classic of, of this episode. It's, got, it's not a perfect film, but Ray Scheider is always compelling enough. And, and John Glover's the villains, actually, what sells it for me. And then another one that came out about the same time and, and actually landed canon some Oscar nominations was Runaway Train from a uh, script by Akira Kurosawa, of all people. Which is still insane. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, you saw Runaway Train, right, James? Yeah, I, I saw I think, I, I, again, I, this is going to be a, a reoccurring statement on this podcast but i'm pretty sure i might have saw it with you or I'm, i might have saw it with ben but yeah i, I think i saw it in, in my uh very late 20s for the first time i probably haven't seen it in almost since my very late 20s but <laughs> i think I, there was a point i think where we I don't know if this, it might not have been you, but it would sounds like it was you where we were watching every Eric Roberts movie. <laughs> like every night of the week, there was an Eric Roberts movie. That sounds like me. I, I don't remember. I don't think I saw Runaway Train though until, well, I guess late 20s. So maybe it was you and I. Probably would have been maybe. Ben's idea. <laughs> I was say it might have been either Ben or I know at one point our friend Casey was very, very uh, into Eric Roberts. Uh, so it might have also been Casey uh, with Casey. It's funny, those days were... I will say, uh, the, you know, I look very, I mean, this podcast exists because of how fondly I look back on those days of just hanging out and, uh, you know, talking about movies, watching movies. But a lot of that stuff uh, doesn't exactly, the scenario didn't mesh well with a strong memory. So um, <laughs> for multiple reasons. So, uh, yeah, but I mean, uh, my facts could be wrong, but it was definitely, I felt like it was, it was one of you guys. Uh, I also have a love-hate relationship with John Voight. Yeah, uh, big time. Because he is a he's a talented actor when he wants to be. He he's capable of being a talented actor, but he doesn't always pull it off. But yeah, uh, John Voight and Eric Roberts were both nominated for Oscars for this movie, which makes me think. I didn't look at the other nominees, but it makes me think. Of, as, as good as this movie is, as much as I enjoy it, uh, going back and rewatching it makes me think that 1985 must have been a pretty slow year because I don't think that these are Oscar <laughs> nomination worthy performances. They're so hammy. They're so over the top, which is the charm, which is why I enjoy these performances. But I don't chalk them up as like Oscar material. I can't tell where What's any fun? of them are from. They're both using accents. And Eric Roberts <laughs> Eric Roberts is playing uh, Matthew McConaughey playing Forrest Gump in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I need my shoes. And, <laughs> and uh, I will say this. You know, it was weird because there was a time in my life when Eric... I remember Eric Roberts being considered a legitimate actor. No, he was. He, he was a good actor. That's what's weird. I mean... But, I mean... I, I can list I up, uh, you know, some Sidley Lament movies. Star 80 was good. There were several things he did right around this period uh, that, that were Oscar-worthy. And, and he's, again, not bad in this, but that accent is so all over the place. I can't tell yeah. if he's deep Southern or if he's trying to play... Um, of mice and men sort of scenario with Voight escaping from prison uh, and Voight's just chewing it up. He's just gruff Voight in a, in a part that apparently Marlon Brando really loved him in this part, uh, wrote about him in his autobiography in Runaway Train. Uh, but it's, it's a really tense script. These guys, they escape from a maximum security prison and they hop on a train to try to get away. The movie's not actually much about the prison break. That's just kind of the first act. Although it's, yeah. it starts off with John Voight has been sealed in solitary for years. Like, not just locked up. They sealed him with a soldering gun into solitary confinement for like three years. And now he's out. And uh, they jump on this train. And the train, the conductor dies. And uh, the train keeps going. 
and it's it's through the Alaskan wilderness, and it just p- keeps on picking up speed. And then there's these intercuts with scenes in the control center for the trains that are very reminiscent of taking a Pelham one, two, three, but a little less dynamic than that. And then cutting back to the train where you have these two escaped convicts and Rebecca De Mornay is a railroad worker who happens to be on the train as well, trying to figure out how to stay alive while at the same time not getting caught because they can't be rescued in a traditional way if they're prison convicts. That's right. Yeah. And it also features the first ever appearances of Tiny Lister and Danny Trejo. And Runaway Train is one of those ones that everyone should probably see Runaway Train at some point. If if you're interested in filmmaking, it's really tight action. I need to rewatch it. That's the thing is, you know, that revisiting these lists or whatever, it's like, you know, there's a lot of time when you see a movie and like, I mean, there's, you know, hundreds of movies where I'll watch a film and I'll be like, oh, I really like that. And then I move on to another film and other things. And I don't go around to revisiting for one reason or another. A lot of the time, especially with movies uh, these days, like they're harder to come by. You can't just pop into your local rental video store and rent it. And everything yeah. is streaming now. So it's a, sometimes these films are a little harder to find. You know, I remember enjoying it. You know, there is there's something about even that I'm I'm blanking on the on the name of the film, but there was the um Denzel Washington film that's also about a runaway train. Uh, this was just a couple of years where, ago, right? Yeah, about five or six years ago. And yeah. I, I like that too. I, I you know, I like both versions of the taking of Fellham one, two, three, four, but uh I went taking of Pelham one two three. Obviously, I, the original's better, but I, I I enjoyed the remake enough. But yeah, there's something about that concept that's you know you had because I mean the sheer size and weight of Runaway Train. I mean, there's how do you stop that? And it's already a very it's it's a tense sub. It's a great plot device for a film to like you know add in a lot of tension on top of your action and stuff. So it works in that. Uh, I'll, I'll need to revisit it though, like I said, because you know it's it's not super fresh in my brain. I don't specifically remember uh, Eric Roberts' accent, uh, so I don't have anything to say about that. But I do remember <laughs> him being very Eric Robertsy in it. And if you if you know Eric Roberts, you, you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> uh, weirdly angsty. But yeah, that's the thing I liked about mid '80s canon is they they were doing a lot of different. They were taking chances. They were doing quote unquote legitimate movies. They were doing super low budget genre fare. I don't know when Gore came out, but that's probably around this time um, late, so they, they 80s, you know yeah. they were doing yeah mid, mid, mid to mid that mid to late 80s uh they were doing a lot of like interesting things and, and again you couldn't pitch them whole you know in the same way like there was a lot of studios whether it was wizard slash full moon or you know a lot of these places film companies that were sort of finding a niche and really hammering it Cannon was doing all and working with like big time actors and obviously you said earlier some legendary directors but you know it's 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 hard because you know, I give them a lot of credit for sort of putting their fingers in a lot of different pots and trying to do, you know, not be pigeonholed as a studio that doesn't want type of thing. But I do think they are far more well known for like the Invasion USA type films than they yes. are for the runaway trains. But which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. But, you know, I give them credit for sort of branching out and, and making different kinds of films. It's true. You know, there's it's a perfect lead off because there's another film that I don't think that they put out to be one of their elites because there wasn't really anybody huge, particularly associated with it, but has kind of grown to be one of the elites. And I think some people have even forgot that it was originally a Canon film because I don't think the sequels were Canon and that's uh, Highlander, the Highlander. Yep. With your old buddy Clancy Brown. Which is still, I think, I mean, I I love Clancy Brown, even to this day, it's always great when you, especially when he does stuff like, you know, animation work and voiceover, voiceover work and animation. When, as soon as you hear his voice, you're like, 
oh, it's Clancy Brown. But uh, I'll, Kurgan will always he'll always be Kurgan to me, no matter what else he does. I will say Highlander starts with my fa- it's one of my favorite movie openings ever, where it opens up on a uh, fabulous Freebirds wrestling match. Obviously, the score and all the you know we all know the Queen music and all the the great like rock and like very like driving score that they have in all of the soundtrack that i just love the opening it's it's as soon as i saw it for the first time i was in first off i'm a big wrestling fan i'm sure that will uh, come up again i think my high school friends had seen it before i'd seen or my junior high friends or whatever had seen it before i'd seen it and they were uh, big fans and so like a lot of times when like you know your friends like hype you up on something sometimes things don't live up to the hype or whatever but you know and i do think you know there's people are mixed on the sequels, especially the second one. I mean, the third one is not, people aren't really mixed on the third one, but, uh, but the first one is just so goddamn good. And, and, you know, I, I feel like Lambert was really good in it. And I do think like he did end up getting pigeonholed as a sort of genre actor, but he was legitimately a great actor. Clancy Brown was genius. Yeah. I, I mean, the first Highlander is great and was a big, it was, it ended up being a big hit for it. They ended up doing a, you know, a TV series as well, which I also was kind of a fan of at one point. But yeah, it's a great, it's a great weird, like sort of, you know, has its own mythology and its own sort of like sci-fi sort of fantasy kind of element. I just love all the design stuff. The whole mythology is great there. You know, the, the, the line, there can be only one, but it's definitely a film that, I'm sorry? I was just going to say the visuals are fantastic too. It, it's absolutely it's a music video yes, director, absolutely. which was kind of a new concept when this movie came out, was, yeah. was people were starting to graduate from uh, doing music videos into making film. And this is one of them. And then it, it, the Queen soundtrack helps out a lot with that as well. Uh, but there are times where you're getting imagery that doesn't belong necessarily in that era on the big screen. You're getting MTV imagery. And there are some movies where I might be using that same comment to call out how shitty it is but not in the case of highlander <laughs> highlander has all the good parts of music videos uh set to its its sort of beat and style yeah and you know it was definitely yeah it felt at the time especially very contemporary and again i, I think it was one of those rare cases where it was style and substance instead of style over substance uh and again i think like there's so many elements to it and I, again the, the the time travel elements to it and like there's just, I mean, again, all the design stuff is great. Kurgan in his sort of more medieval outfit with that crazy sort of, I don't even know what it is, like a saber-toothed tiger skull. I don't even really know what it is. <laughs> I actually had to draw Kurgan before and in that outfit, and it was very difficult to get all of the details. And then where he goes from that to his sort of 80s look, uh, which is this weird sort of post-apocalyptic punk rock insanity but man he was so perfect in that role but yeah it's a great movie i feel like at some point it became sort of like a joke because it was just people would be like you know oh there can only there can be only one and obviously by the second one which i was a fan of but i know like a lot of the it added a little bit more comedic elements and you know we could talk about uh oh god why am i blanking on one of the most famous sean, actors ever sean, sean connery. connery thank you in fact did i just forget sean connery's name on the last episode <laughs> That's possible. <laughs> yeah, I have something against Sean Connery, apparently. Well, yeah, we were talking about Zardoz, but <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> Connery keeps coming up. I, I think it's cool that he took this, um, especially after uh, Zardoz didn't scare him off of this type of work. But again, the accents—it's—it's it's just like Runaway Trains. <laughs> Connery has one <laughs> accent. He's, I'm not a Spaniard. I'm Egyptian, except for you know, in the next movie, I'm Russian and. <laughs> And that's the Chicago way. And it's, it's yeah. the same voice and everything, no matter where he's <laughs> from. Uh, but he, he's wonderful in this. He, 
you want them to stick around forever. I never saw the sequel. To me, Highlander had an ending. There can be only one. And that's kind of how I feel about it as a film series as well. I guess I could probably have my arm twisted into seeing the second one, but that's really only because Connery returned. And I would be curious on that level. No, but, but I think I remember seeing we, film, I, it's great. Yeah. No, like I said, the first one's great. In fact, like I said, it's one of those films that like Lee should have been, you know, leave well enough alone. It wraps up and yeah, it has exactly. a clear ending. Very concise. Yeah, Ex- exactly. But uh, I do feel like saying or mentioning that, you know, I was very excited. I don't know why for the uh, uh, third one. I can't remember the title, but it had Mario Van Peebles in it as the villain. Um, oh, and I just, just I let, me, was... let me interject for just a moment. I noticed on okay. the last episode, I referenced that Melvin Van Peebles was in the canon movie Rappin. No, that was Mario Van Peebles. Mario Van Peebles. Was in Rappin. So I just had to correct that wrong against Melvin Van Peebles, actually. <laughs> I'm sure Melvin appreciates that. I remember renting it with friends being excited. For some reason, I thought it might be good. And I don't even think we made 20 minutes into it before we turned it off. And I don't think I ever finished the rest of it, but uh, it was it was terrible. So, you know, there's a lot. We're, we're not going to, as we discussed the last time, we're not going to go through every single film. Before I go into some movie that I'm very, very, very excited to talk about. I know you had mentioned that you had seen Murphy's Law when we were talking about... Uh, uh, Canon's uh, use of Charles Bronson. Do you want to discuss Murphy's Law? Oh, I, I think I discussed it enough with that line. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I, I am. I am going to continue not fucking with Jack Murphy. <laughs> there you go. Yes, that's good. We'll leave it there. I'll say this: it has. It's. I think the only one that I remember of the Canon films that has a female villain, like a like an evil villain. So props to them. Having a female villain, I guess, versus Charles. There you Bronson. go. Does he doesn't punch her in it? Does does he? I don't. Let's think not even. So. I, uh, yeah, let's leave that one alone. No, I. Um, <laughs> surveying in my head, but it's another one I watched with one eye. So he he may have. I mean, he had to. You know, he beats her. He wins. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, fair's fair, I guess. And we're we're bypassing some interesting films. So yeah. So the next, uh, what I really want to talk about, what I'm most excited to talk about, is uh, released in 1986. Is what I still consider to be the greatest achievement in film history, regardless of country, continent. It doesn't matter. Greatest film in film history is uh, the 1906 classic by uh, George Cosmatos. I can never Cosmatos. Cosmatos. That's that's as good as I know. Yeah, sure. And that is 1986 Cobra. Sylvester Stallone's, which is a very interesting, I'm sure you already know, it's got a very interesting backstory of like why it exists. And mm-hmm. I still think it's, the, it's as I sit next to basically a, a, a small shrine that you've helped uh, contribute to, by the way, Devin, and I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> Happy to. Uh, is, uh, I, for those that haven't seen it, it's based off of a book called Fair Game, which was also turned into a movie with uh, Cindy Crawford, Crawford and, yeah. and one of the uh, uh, Baldwins. Some um, Baldwin or the, another that's not Alec. One of the lesser Baldwins. Um, not, I mean, it's that's, very, that's what Alec very... calls all of them, by the way. These, hi, I'm it, Alec, and these, are, and these are the lesser Baldwins. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, look, you know, he's my favorite jerk. I mean, we could talk about jerks, but I, I mean, he's a jerk that I can live with because he's so goddamn talented. Anyways, we're not here to talk about Alcohol. We're here to talk about the greatest movie ever made. Um, now, of course, uh, I say that slightly sarcastically uh, because I, I recognize that it's not necessarily the greatest movie ever made, but it is one of the most perfect films for what I, what 
I enjoy in cinema. And like I said, I could I, I could make an entire series of podcasts about this just because I find it, I'm so fascinated by it. First of all, like I said, it's very loosely based off of, a, of this novel, but originally it was supposed to be, the original Beverly Hills Cop was supposed to be a Stallone movie and the, the studio wanted to go in a comedic, you know, way and he wanted to do more an action film. So he left the project and then Beverly Hills Cop became Beverly Hills Cop and then he you know, made this movie Cobra, which is like said, loosely based off of the novel Fair Game. Very quick, if you haven't seen it, I don't know what you're listening to this podcast for. <laughs> so it's this weird fucking movie uh, that makes very little sense in like when you really start to think about it. Uh, but he's basically plays Marion Cobretti, who's an officer on the zombie squad, which is basically this sort of ambiguous division of the uh, police department. Um, which you never see, but they're uh, consistently reminding you it exists. And that exactly, and that on only it. the war, like only like the like most uh, hard ass cops have to deal with the zombie squad, which basically deals with like again, it's very ambiguous, but basically like serial killers or I don't. It, that, again, it's it's not. Look, the movie opens up with people in the sewer clanging axes together. Like some of them are wearing suits, some of them are dressed like uh, they're going on vacation, some of them are dressed like the homeless. It's this weird mishmash of people in the sewer, rhythmically clanking axes together, and they never explain it, which is my favorite thing. Apparently in uh, uh, the script, it does kind of go more into who they are and kind of why they exist, but even that isn't like, from what I understand, it's it's not super detailed, but the movie doesn't explain it, which I think is the fucking greatest decision because it almost makes them more terrifying. But it's this whole, basically like this, this whole, like uh, what it essentially is, is like a, uh, a collective of people who believe that only the strong survive and that there's going to be basically like an apocalypse and that to survive the apocalypse, you have to basically be a ruthless killer, a hunter. They're trying to basically bring upon like the this like survival of the fittest end of the world scenario kind of they have like there's you know corrupt cops involved in this and so there's uh, i'm explaining this way too much the legendary brian thompson who's a character actor that's been in a, a million things usually because of his stature and his face he's usually in makeup of some kind he plays he's been on you know all sorts of like you know sci-fi and action series and stuff but he plays my one of my favorite, maybe my favorite ever movie villain, uh, the Night Slasher. Um, but basically, it's uh, you have uh, you know Stallone. There's this basically like there's all these murders going on going on, and nobody can find it out. Like because there's because it's a, a like this group of people they can't really find out who's doing it. Like the cops don't know what's happening. They don't know who's who is uh, committing these vicious murders. And one night, uh, Bridget Brigitte Nielsen, who plays this supermodel kind of chick. In a Stallone uh, movie? No. In fact, there's an interesting story about that. I will get to that in a second. Uh, <laughs> she basically witnesses, sees them. She can ID them. She drives upon uh, one of them. They're out to kill her, and Stallone basically is, as a cop, him and his partner have to basically protect her and stuff and also try to figure, solve this mystery of who's committing these vicious, heinous murders. The movie's bananas in all of the best ways. Every five minutes, there's something that happens where you're like, what the fuck, what? One of my favorite things, which I was obsessed with as a kid, but as an adult, I've come to realize that I'm not the only one, which is the way that Cobra, Marin Cobretti, eats pizza, which is he eats it cold with a pair of scissors, and he keeps his gun cleaning tools in the, in the refrigerator as well, with a, like in an egg carton. He's got all of his gun cleaning tools there. I've noticed all these other people who are, are fans of the film or who have at least seen it who are also fascinated the way that Cobra eats pizza, which is cold, 
uh, with a pair of scissors, and he only takes like little. He cuts off a little slice of pizza and eats it. That's his nourishment. And of course, you have Stallone, who's like this jacked, oiled specimen of a man, and his whole nourishment is one quarter of a slice of cold pizza that he cuts with a pair of scissors. And uh, there's a lot of other fascinating things that I won't go into it. But at one point, the movie actually held. I don't know if it's if it still holds the record for the most on-screen people shot by one character. I don't know this uh, statistic because I don't do my homework. But uh, I I think it was something like six. 65 he shoots basically and kills like 65 people during this movie i believe um i think the record's been broken since the movie's one of the greatest endings of all time all of the dialogue in this movie i want uh, chiseled on my tombstone Um, but it's 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 the one of the most memorable quotable stupid movies ever made it's just pure it's when somebody says the word macho or machismo I immediately think of this movie. It's like, yeah. it's insane. Interesting fact though, Sylvester Stallone was married. He was married and he was uh, filming on location somewhere and staying in his hotel room. And Brigitte Nielsen found out where he was staying and sent up a envelope full of nudes to his hotel room. How classy. And, and he was, uh, he was impressed. And uh, the, you know, uh, you can take the rest from there. Um, he, he did call her up to his room and then he started playing in her movies. So, um, and dating her. So, you know, is this movie uh, the greatest movie ever made? It is to me, but uh, it's, I think it's definitely, and it's funny. I don't, it was actually, I could have sworn it carried the, the Canon logo. It was uh Golan Globus product. Like they produced it, but apparently it was Warner's that released it, but they had, uh, it a, is technically- they had a side deal. Uh, Canon at various times, some of these were released by MGM for the distributor. Warner Brothers was around for a tiny bit, but they, they bounced around to different distributors, but they were always Canon films. But I, I do think that that affected whether they were going to yeah, give the classic Canon logo. But again, I mean, that's the thing is I, I could have, so I mean, and I, I mean, I literally, ironically, Devin today, literally, I, we, I just got home before we started recording this podcast. I was in Austin uh, all day and uh, my Scream Factory Blu-ray arrived today. Of Cobra? Uh, yeah, of Cobra. I didn't Sweet. own the Scream Factory release. Well, now so, I know what to not I think get I kept, because I owned, I owned it on Blu-ray. There you go. But anyways, yeah, that's, that, I'll say that's enough from me for Cobra. But obviously, you know, I could talk about it more. But it's definitely, I think, one of the most seminal pictures that they made in, as far as I'm concerned, because I feel like, especially by 1986, sort of summed up what they did. There's some other films on this on this list that I'm almost as passionate about, right, almost right there, but it's hard to anything. Not, not as many films come hit me on the same level, but there's a <laughs> few on this list that are pretty goddamn close. But yeah, what about you? What... What film do you want to talk about next, Devin? Uh, well, uh, outside of agreeing with you on Cobra, Cobra is every kind of oh, yeah. machismo trope rolled into one. And I wanted to see it so bad as a kid. And for whatever reason, I wasn't allowed to see it. I, I think around the same age, I had seen The Terminator and things like that. That You know how it is. When you're a kid, somehow certain movies just become the ones you're not allowed to see, even though you've seen much worse. For whatever reason, I wasn't allowed to see Cobra until I was a little older. And then I saw it as a teenager. Um, I think I probably saw it with my best friend, Greg. But yeah, just every line is some sort of a pithy classic. And and I, I would <laughs> kill to see the uncut version. Apparently there's a print of this that's got like 45 minutes additional that some fans have, yeah. but it's never been made available. Uh, I'm assuming you haven't seen it or else you would have said something. Have you seen the uncut Cobra? So I think around 2010, there was a copy, you, there was a a torrent copy that you could watch, but it what people kept saying it was, I think it ended up being, if I'm not mistaken, it was only like, it really only had 15 minutes of unuseful footage. There was longer cuts. I know the, the opening was longer and a little bit different, but 
there is the legendary there is a legendary quote unquote director's cut but i mean i've heard rumors that it existed but i've ne- i don't know anybody who's actually seen it myself like i said the one copy the one thing i'd seen like i said God, maybe it was even earlier than 2010 might have been like 2008 2007 like i said it only had an extra 15 minutes and it was kind of a work cut looking thing if i'm not mistaken if, if okay. i remember correctly yeah i think may like i said there a lot of them were either longer cuts like where you know it was an extra like 30 seconds to a minute to a scene nothing like outrageous like i said they, they do kind of i do remember if i'm not mistaken uh one of the scenes midway point where they do the there's a sequence where there's actually i think another corrupt cop if i'm not mistaken there's a female cop in the movie who is a she's a cop and she's also a member of the she's basically uh, undercover she's a member of the this like this cult or whatever uh this crime cult and i do i i do feel like there was an exposition there where she does sort of explain i i need to i would need to rewatch it to be certain but like i said if i remember correctly it was like maybe an extra 15 minutes of actual like new footage or or different footage and again like i said it was like it was like a work cut or something it was pretty poor quality but i again i know it's existed but i've never been able to find it and obviously i've looked for it but uh and viewers if you're out there and you've seen it or you know where i can get a copy for god's sakes let us know because i want to see it but uh yeah i know it's never going to get it's never going to get released so uh you know there was a similar uh situation with the apple they found uh about 10 years or so ago, there was a fire in the back lot of, of Universal Studios, uh, including in their archives, and they discovered a new print of the Apple. And I believe it was actually sent to the silent movie theater in LA, which is uh, now shut down, bordered, and you know gone off to Me Too yep. land, unfortunately. But it, at the time, uh, they, they ran this print of the Apple that had like an opening with Mr. Top explaining uh, who Alfie and BB were. And from all accounts, it makes the movie no more or less confusing, but it does have some extra songs and some extra verses and stuff. I would love to see that. And that has been, uh, and it started to make the rounds as on the Midnight Movie Circuit, just as the original print of the Apple did. And it sounds like someone stole it. So, oh, really? Yeah. When Kino Lorber, I think it's Kino Lorber who put, the apple out on blu-ray finally i think they were trying to find both cuts and they could only find the original cut to remaster so maybe that's still forthcoming but i think somebody jacked the uh, the extended version of the apple for their own personal collection which is pretty shitty that sucks yeah yeah but springboarding off of cobra i think the natural spot is uh over the top which i i would really just kind of want to put out there just so that i can say that i side with robert loja on this (laughs) (laughs) please explain (laughs) uh well for those who haven't seen over the top it's it's another mid-80s classic uh with sylvester stallone it was unlike cobra this was not a passion project of stallone's uh uh, golan uh directed this himself again and convinced stallone to uh to do the film by fattening his his wallet and Stallone basically figured, well, who's ever going to watch it? And it, it, I think it was a hit. I, I don't think, I mean, we're still talking about over the top in my school. Oh, yeah. the best summation I can give of over the top is actually from a friend of mine in high school. Uh, this guy that I went through drama class with named Matt, when he went off to college and he wrote for the, his college paper, he did a list for the paper of the top five greatest arm wrestling movies ever made. And the list was completely blank, except for over the top was number four. <laughs> <laughs> Disrespect. <laughs> now, 
Devin, I, I'm going to go on record as saying I am a giant fan of this movie. Oh, and, and uh, me too. Me too. Uh, I don't think that there's you're... something about I wouldn't want to even have dinner with Sylvester. Like I, I have no there's nothing inside me for even the smallest part that would want to have a personal interaction with uh, with Stallone. But goddamn, for some reason, as a child, he made movies I really enjoyed. And for some reason, Stallone had a huge impact on me as a kid. Like the, he made movies I loved. I mean, say what you want about Stallone, especially by the mid 80s. But you know, he was obviously a talented writer and director. I mean, he made amazing films. The first Rocky is a legitimately great film. The first First Blood, um, he was fantastic in it. He was a very capable actor. But, uh, you know, he he became an icon. He became a superstar. So, but yeah, as a kid, he was making movies I wanted to see. I wanted to see movies about arm wrestling. I wanted to see movies uh, about arm wrestling absentee fathers who pushed Terry Funk through plate glass windows and argued with Robert Loja. Now, real quick, though, uh, you, you have to... Uh, explain the robert loggia thing because uh, <laughs> uh i've never heard robert loggia's opinions on this movie but i'm very curious to hear what they are oh i i would be too i i unfortunately i have no robert loggia news to deliver i'm speaking purely on a plot level that kid belongs in robert loggia's house because oh. lincoln hawk is going to make the worst father for that poor kid michael how dare you sir how <laughs> dare you hey, i'm not denying that robert loja is a dick in this movie he's the grandfather I, I don't know exactly what's going on with the family situation stallone is playing another great name because amongst rocky balboa john rambo and marion cobretti now he's lincoln hawk which is which is the toughest name, name ever it's awesome i love it uh, and i i love this movie but we get very vague ideas that he ran out on his family at some point. And every time his son, Michael, tries to get him to open up, like, why did you go? Why did you never come back? All we really get in form of an answer is, uh, you know, it's complicated. And it's, <laughs> he never really says what. There's allusions at certain points to drugs. We don't know if that's because he's dealing them or taking them at the time that he ran away from his family. But he can't give a direct answer to his son. And his ex-wife, the, the kid's mother, is dying of what I can only assume is heart cancer because they never tell you what her diagnosis is. And she's waiting for a heart transplant. What's wrong with mom? She's waiting for a heart transplant, whatever the hell that means. And on top of uh, Lincoln Hawk being late to his son's graduation and then being late to the hospital so that the kid never gets to see his mother again. And then he's late to the funeral. He's late to everything. He completely screws this kid over. Can't give him any reasons why he ran away. And when it comes down to well, what are you going to do if you get the kid and the kid can either stay with his wealthy grandfather, who's a douchebag played by Robert Loja. Although if Lincoln was a, had a bad drug habit, then maybe Loja is warranted in being a dick to him. And certainly Loja can give him the kid money and protection. Salone, he just says, the only important thing is that we're together, you know, and it's <laughs> so, so you're going to take custody of your son and you, you're what, just going to ride around in a truck from arm wrestling tournament to arm wrestling tournament? Like, the kid's got to go to school. The kid's got to have a roof. There's no plan. There's no history. It's just he should be with Stallone because it's Stallone. I side with Robert Loja. I think that kid belongs with Robert Loja. Just being fair. I don't know if we can be friends. I don't know if we can film this podcast anymore with your terrible disparaging of Lincoln Hawks. And his, his, he's, he's the boy's day. He just wants to be with his son. And look, dude, Being you know, together he, is enough, Mike. 
I didn't realize you were such a pessimist. I thought you were a romantic, Devin. He's going to teach his son how to arm wrestle strangers in diners and... Uh, you're right. You know, you're right. Uh, I take it back. <laughs> come on, man. He beat Bill Harley to win... And that's the one, the motivation through the whole movie is that, you know, his, all he cares about is getting a new truck. He has a truck. They don't show it breaking down. Yes. It's an older truck, but they don't explain how it's going to improve his life. Like, why is that going to take him to the next level? Like, is there any trucking company out there that gives a shit about Unless your truck cab is breaking down consistently, which they never show it do. I was like, what is this motivation? I mean, I would think money would be a motivation. Well, be, you know, they're going to call does- it Hawk and Sons. <laughs> Son and Hawk. Son and Hawk, that's right. Uh, He does bet money on himself, though. He bets seven grand on himself in the contest, and he's 20 to one. So he made a good chunk there. They do mention 100 grand being the prize at the uh, over the top arm wrestling tournament, but it's unclear in my mind whether that 100 grand is the value of the truck or if there's a cash prize on top of the truck. Uh, I also was a little bit confused. I think it was the value of the truck, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. I'm also a little confused. I didn't know that all professional arm wrestlers were truckers, but that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's a goddamn good point, Devin. I never even <laughs> thought about that before. Because the grand prize is a truck, a new truck for all truck. these truckers that like yeah. to arm wrestle. You know, again, I, I don't mean to shit on it. Uh, there are other movies in, like, I love Hercules, the the canon version of Hercules with Lou Ferrigno, which is one of the worst things ever put on celluloid. Uh, He literally, it's him fighting a guy in a bear costume. And when they needed a real bear for cutaway shots, they just cut them out of the movie Grizzly. Some of the worst special (laughs) effects you've ever seen in your life, uh, including Lou Ferrigno as a special effect. (laughs) Whoever they got to dub Lou Ferrigno sounds nothing like what you would expect Lou Ferrigno would sound like from his look. Now, of course, the real Lou Ferrigno has some hearing issues that made it necessary for them to dub him. So I'm not, I'm not dogging on say, just now. making fun of the disabled Devin new low, new but, low. <laughs> but on this long, long list of movies that are, you know, tongue in cheek or so bad, they're good at, at best. In some of these cases, there were some, several parts in over the top and rewatching it where I was just like, that's, that's at least got to be called out or mentioned. And one of them is that the prize for this big tournament is exactly what Lincoln Hawk wants. Yes, a, tr- a new truck. That's a good point. I'm sure. I mean, that's the thing is like how the convenience of that, but uh, the fact that like everybody else is like these arm professional arm wrestlers are all fighting for a truck. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe in the '80s that was legitimate. Maybe that was a thing, but uh, it's a good call out because it could uh, be. I never considered that before. And and um, then he also uh, he loses an argument to his son and makes it say- seem like it was never an argument. His son is is an elitist because he's rich and he's giving him all that shit, <laughs> intellectual shit about how he's higher class and and hangs out with a higher group of people than his lowly truck driver father. Which in which case Stallone is getting appropriately frustrated with that attitude. Yeah. And finally he's like, "Yeah, you think you're so smart? Why don't you drive the rig?" And first off, bad father lets his 12-year-old kid drive the Mack truck down an actual street. Uh, <laughs> so, again, point Robert Loja. But the kid can actually drive the rig. Like, very quickly figures out how to drive the rig, which A, proves that it does not take intelligence to drive Lincoln Hawk's rig and blows his point out of the water. Or the kid just is a natural at it. I guess we can go that route. But uh, Stallone, seeing his kid drive the rig, goes, I knew you had it in you. And it's like, no, you didn't. That's why you challenged him to drive it, because he wanted to make him look stupid. 
I do not appreciate your your lambasting of Lincoln Hawks, and uh, I'll, I'll forgive said, you. But I love that movie. I will rewatch that movie because it just brings up so many memories of childhood, and it's it's fun. Uh, and and it's not made for me. It's made for ten year olds. Um, it's it's made for kids like like the kid in this movie. Uh, I'm not the target audience. Yeah, and like I said, it's a great. I, I enjoy it. You know, they had real life uh, arm wrestlers in it, and like I said, I thought the uh, villain Bull Hurley was uh, very. Like I said, I thought he was an. And he he had done a few movies outside of that. He did try to become an actor, and in fact, he lost a lot of weight at one point. But uh, I, I always thought Bill Hurley was a cool character. I still want his Master Blaster T-shirts. But yeah, it's it's a movie. I will have you know, Devin, uh, it was popular enough that it did actually get a uh, toy line. Oh, that nice. toy line uh, didn't exist for very long, and now those figures go for a lot of money. They're very sought after because they were so limited release. Uh, so it was popular enough to get a, a toy line, but not popular enough that the toys were very successful. I think um, I remember that. Did again, they come with like an arm wrestling table? They did. Yes, they okay, did. Okay, I remember that toy line. Oh my God, I'm flashing back. See, but it, there um, again, proof positive this film was not made for me. This was to a, a 10, 11, 12 year old kid truck driving Stallone is the perfect dad and he definitely be. That's right. How dare you question Lincoln Hawks. <laughs> All right, let's 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 get through this. Um there they did a couple of things that um you know were important at the time. The Robotech the movie which is Yeah, people forget such, that that was a canon. Yep. Uh which is a very like the history of Robotech is so fucking confusing and convoluted cuz it was three different properties that you know Harmony Gold bought to make into American series and you know there was Macro there's there's just there's it's too confusing but the time that movie meant a lot to me there's one a movie that's very interesting is avenging force uh which was basically canon was really trying to make michael dudikoff like like another big character or another big another, uh, action star another norris i i think he probably yeah. had more talent than norris too. i think if they had tried to teach dudikoff if they had given him acting lessons instead of martial arts lessons <laughs> they might have had something on their hands because dudikoff has a raw talent and he definitely has a look uh, yeah exactly and he, he's like credit. the opposite of like he wasn't the greatest martial artist but he was a you know a competent actor where you know chuck norris was an martial artist who turned into an actor so it was sort of weird like mirror Reverse opposites thing, of each yeah. other a little bit yeah let's talk let's do this let's let's get into it into what i really do think of, of anything to to associate with canon as a film company to me it's what they did with john claude like they really made john claude a star um they gave him two of his most well-known beloved films i would say three. and then they also did well so they did cyborg which is an interesting movie which will actually well let's touch about cyborg after we talk about some other movies on this okay. list okay i get you because it's it has I a know, weird history i know exactly where but, you're going but so when i said there was a film on this list that almost rivaled its importance to me uh rivaled cobra as far as a movie that meant a lot to me we need to talk about Bloodsport, which I actually will say, and I say this with not even a hint of uh, irony or uh, or hyperbole. I think Bloodsport is the greatest American martial arts movie um, for a multitude of reasons I could get into. Again, a lot of these movies we, I could talk about forever. Bloodsport has a very interesting, the history of Bloodsport as a movie is interesting on its own. The fact that it was quote unquote based off of a real person. Uh, well, it was based off of a real person, but the real person himself uh, was a giant liar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the real Frank Dukes, but it's the movie is weirdly one of the most rewatchable movies 
It has a lot of it heart. It does. And Jean-Claude, yes, I, I, 100%. And Jean-Claude, it, he sort of repeated things he would do later on in this movie as far as like you have his training sequences. In fact, we'll get onto that in the, another canon film. But it just, everything works. All of the the fight, the fight themselves are great. And having Bolo Young, who already was a uh, international well-known actor in the in in the orient having been chinese hercules and you know he fought bruce lee you know bolo young had a, a name you know in asia to begin with but he he brings this gravitas to this film as Chung Lee, the uh the villain in this movie he's i used to, as a as a kid i used to refer to him as buff chinese gary shandling because uh, <laughs> that's what he looks like to me as a kid it was just it was this weird thing i couldn't get out of my head but goddamn this movie features donald gibb as my favorite film character ever uh, Jackson. I was actually just having, I, I, I do a different, I, I, I'm on a different podcast uh, for our listeners. Uh, I'm actually on several podcasts. Nobody, I don't know why anybody would. Anyways, let's not go there. But, All of which I enjoy, we talking about, though, by the way, James. I'm on none of them and I, I can objectively say I enjoy all of the podcasts I've listened to. I appreciate that. I appreciate your support, Devin. We recently talked about the greatest duos in action film history and I I, I had to bring up Frank Dukes and Jackson because I think they, Don Gibb and Jean-Claude weirdly have this really great chemistry on screen together <laughs> and, you know, at first, the way they introduce him, you know, you, you don't think you're going to like Donald Gibb's character. You, you know, you, he, th- you think he's going to be another meathead a la Ogre in Revenge of the Nerds. But he turns out to be like this very lovable biker guy. The movie's great and the reason, one of the reasons I say it's one of the best, uh, if not the best, American produced martial arts film is first off the movie is literally only about martial arts there's no other there's no terrorist plot there's the nothing that guy is the opponent in the ring it's all about the actual fighting and and you know uh what happens in the ring uh the kumite is a real thing or at least it's believed to be really true the way that's portrayed in this movie is way far more fantastical and a little like you know eye rolly and this like you know this sort of there's there really is believe people believe there really was a kumites where basically really great martial artists were invited from all over the world and uh to compete and it was like a no holds barred that wasn't for a belt or anything it was literally just for saying who's the greatest martial artist and stuff and they there are people who believe that that those things really did exist but anyways this movie's over the top it's great Every single fight sequence in it is really memorable. I think it's Jean-Claude Van Damme's best movie. He would be, go on to be have more nuanced roles, especially late career um, Jean-Claude Van Damme, who had a sort of renaissance a few years ago. Uh, but this point, like he, it was pre all of the outrageous drug abuse and the, his ego hadn't really gone super off the rails yet as it would for like say street fighter but he's like even though he wasn't the most competent actor he, he has a likability and a real believability in this role and it really made him a star like i remember being in school and there wasn't one male boy who wasn't obsessed with this movie and then you know <laughs> obviously you know there has been you know a lot of like you know obviously the street fighter video games the moral combat all these fighting games and a lot of them sort of they attempts to make these sort of video game adaptation of these fighting video games at the end says that's what this was before all of those games or at least you know yeah the majority of the well-known ones it's basically the plot of one of those games it's done really well and like just it's really great dialogue some really goofy fun characters and stuff so it, it's i i, I his, his mentor it. at the start of the movie is his best friend's dad who ends up teaching him that that's the dynamic i remember anyways played by the guy from the beginning of indiana jones and the temple of doom that poisons dr jones it took me a minute to recognize him huh i don't remember that the um the japanese guy yeah he was the guy at huh. the beginning of, of temple of doom at the club obi-wan who you know uh 
he holds up the antidote. Indy says, what's that? And it's uh, the antidote to the poison you just drank, Dr. Jones. Okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to admit something on this podcast that if you're if you're friends with me in real life, you probably already know. Not a big fan of uh, the Indiana Jones films. Yes. Uh, at least not that I think they're You've bad movies. That. Yeah, uh, but I do think Temple of Doom is my favorite one, which is always too much people's chagrin. Oh, it's funny. I'll have to rewatch it to remember that. But even though, like I said, he's yeah, I mean, the real Frank Dukes claimed that, uh, you know, he was taught. He basically as a young kid, uh, you know, studying in Asia, in East Asia, I don't know wh- where exactly, uh, but uh, he, um, him and some, he was American in the, in the movie, because John Clement Dan obviously wasn't going to play an American, but, uh, you know, he basically tried to steal this very expensive katana sword, and he was caught by the guy whose house he was breaking into, and basically beat him, like, made, made him become, like, a punching bag for his son to, to learn martial arts, and then ended up really thinking, like, hey, this young Frank Duke's kid has a lot of gumption and you know he's got a natural aptitude yeah it's it's uh it's goofy shit but it works in the movie uh especially in 1988 or whatever the movie came out but yeah it's it's great i'd say the second one which was i think maybe a year later was kickboxer which is they have a lot of similar plot points in this one um, more of the same i think blood sports uh, the winner in that of those two no, oh, yeah, absolutely. Even though I, I have a giant soft spot for Kickboxer as well, I, I think the ending's super tough. You know, uh, basically in that, it's his his brother is the kick, American kickboxing star, and John Clement M's just like his his brother who like they're they're brothers who were raised separately. Their parents divorced and they were raised separately. And Van Damme's mother took him over to uh, France. I don't remember where, but uh, that's why he has an accent and his brother doesn't. But anyways, <laughs> his brother is this cocky American fighter who goes to Thailand because that's where real kickboxing is, and he thinks he's gonna just go over there. And, and just roll over those dudes and then he meets Tung Po who uh, paralyzes him and then Jean Van Damme wants to learn martial art learn true Thai kickboxing to get revenge for his brother and that's literally that's the movie that's I mean there's some weird there's some dancing you know there. uh, there's an American which is my favorite sequence in film history uh, my mom my mother uh Loved John Claude, uh, loved his butt, and uh, loved that sequence. My mom actually thought he was a good dancer, which yeah. I find <laughs> very bizarre. But to this day, I can do that dance perfectly. Uh, beat I've seen to it. Beat. Uh, I've, I've I, asked you to yes, do it before. I, it used to be thing at the parties, you know. Hey, James. Uh, that's right. Can you give us some Van Dam? <laughs> you all know, anybody said like do the Van Dam, and I would just I'd have to do it. Yeah. Like the truffle shuffle. But yeah, it's, I love the movie, but it's basically just a one of those very formulaic white guy gets taught by, uh, you know, his uh, his Asian mentor, his a- Asian sensei, whether it's Thailand or, you know, Okinawa or, you know, uh, uh, Hong Kong. Just put white guy learns martial art from Asian guy, which is basically every 80s uh, martial art movie. But it's fun. I mean, it's really great. The action is really good, which I th- feel like still, though, those are two probably, well, not necessarily my favorites. I, I do. I, I love both of them, and Bloodsport's my favorite. But I, I think there's other works of his that still hold up for me. But like, there, there is a movie Cyborg, but we'll talk about that later. Did you want to say anything else about Jean Claude or any of his other movies? My, my experience with Jean Claude Van Damme is a little different than yours. I was aware of him, and I'd seen the movies growing up. I wasn't the fan that you were, though. In fact, my favorite part was the dancing. And <laughs> I, I knew, always knew you were a huge fan. And, and so I never really told you I was not. I, a huge I don't fan. blame you, but. <laughs> uh, but no, then I saw uh, JCVD, which was Jean Claude Van Damme's initials and also a movie he made around 2008, in which he plays himself. And it begs a re examination of his earlier work. So I, I love the movie so much. 
uh, him playing himself and how honest he was and how like he's in this really hard custody battle uh, trying to get custody of his daughter. And when his daughter is asked who, uh, if she would want to go with her father, she point blank says no. And the reason is because she's embarrassed of the movies he makes and the kids at school make fun of her. And I thought that was so raw for Jean-Claude to to lay him his own ego on the line. And he fully acknowledges the drug use, the obscene spending, the ego. He really lays himself bare and makes himself extremely likable. And suddenly I went back and rewatched. I started with the canon movies. I still haven't gotten through the entire filmography because it's going to take some time. But I did go over the canon movies again. And I like them so much more now just by having a better understanding of who Jean-Claude was himself or is himself. Uh, and I know that I'm going, he's playing himself in a movie, but it's still a movie. It's not as if he's actually playing a, in a documentary. Uh, no. so, so I know that I'm still following a fabrication of Jean-Claude Van Damme, but I am infinitely more interested in him uh, since, since, since seeing that movie. And I appreciate Kickboxer and, and Bloodsport on a much higher level than I ever did when I was young. Did, did Devin, did you see his Amazon series, uh, Jean-Claude Van Johnson? I saw like the first half of the first episode, but we're literally talking yeah, it's, like it's, two it's... days ago. I Because of, of this podcast, I wanted to catch some of it. Like, I do intend to go back and watch the rest. It's it's. I mean, it's definitely in the same vein of JCVD where it's like, it's more of a comedy, even though there's definitely comedic elements uh, in JCVD. It's more of a comedy, but again, it's him playing with his his public persona and portraying him as far less cool and far less capable. Two real quick things about Jean-Claude before we move on. One is uh, my favorite story about Jean-Claude Van Damme is um, he got into a bar fight. I think it was at Scores Strip Club in New York. Uh, it was him, Chuck Zito. Chuck Zito was basically murdering him. Chuck Zito, who was a former Hells Angel, who my father knew. Actually, my father knew him from um, Lowell, Massachusetts from childhood. But he was an actor. He's He's been in a, a lot of things. He was a real-life tough guy, but he apparently was at scores and beating up Jean-Madame. And there was a, I forget who else was in the melee, but Mickey Rourke was the one that broke the fight up. And I always thought that it's funny that Mickey Rourke, if you know Mickey Rourke is the voice of reason uh, in your squabble, uh, there's a problem. Uh, and then my other favorite thing is, uh, is you know, you sort of midway through his career, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme developed this giant knot on his head. Uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed that, Devin. Uh, do you know how he got that knot on his head? No, I don't. Dolph Lundgren almost killed him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Dolph Lundgren, besides being a fascinating human being, what maybe people don't understand is like, even though Jean-Claude Van Damme was known for to be a martial arts, and he did Shotokan Karate, which is more of a show mark, um, uh, Dolph Lundgren was legitimately a real martial artist and a bad motherfucker just besides being 6'5 and in an unbelievable shape and uh, they got into a little bit of an argument on the set of Universal Soldiers sort of uh, alpha mailing each other and Dolph Lundgren knocked him out and gave him that giant knot on his head that he still has to this day wow. um, which I always loved but real quick before we move on this is a very long podcast but I have to say my favorite Jean-Claude Van Damme movie that's not Bloodsport uh, and uh, I feel like someday we need to talk about this movie is the movie and it's his first speaking role, not as we mentioned, he was a movie breaking, is uh, No Retreat, No Surrender, which I can't say enough about. It's one of the most ludicrous movies I've ever seen. It's a childhood favorite. Uh, but he plays a villain. He plays the heavy. And me, I think that's why I was a Jean-Claude Van Damme fan from the second I saw him. 
And I, I mean, I was fascinated by the guy, but he plays this like Russian villain, which is, you know, he never, after that he played, always was the, the you know, he's a good looking guy, fantastic shape and very athletic, obviously known for doing the splits, but you know, he started off his, his cinematic as a villain, which I was, fun. and it was definitely a movie I'd love to talk about, but we were, we're, let's try to wrap this up. We, you know, we don't want to go too long on our audience. Uh, I'll let you kind of go to the next segment. Well, speaking of super villains, what are your thoughts on Lex Luthor, James? I feel like he is the quintessential supervillain in the traditional sense. I mean, technically speaking, he was the first, you know, Superman being the first actual costumed superpower supervillain. There was the Crimson Avenger before him and some other literary characters who did have an influence on Superman, but Superman was the first of his kind through that way, through that, even though Lex Luthor did wasn't in the you know, original comic, took a while for him to appear. He still sort of holds that place as a sort of ge- mad genius, uh, ruthless supervillain, even though he doesn't have any powers, he uses his his mind for uh, his evil machinations and eventually his great wealth and power as he's become more of a, a postmodern character. Uh, but I've always loved him, whether he's the evil mayor of Metropolis uh, or he's the evil mad scientist sort of Lex Luthor. But he's a, had a very interesting path uh, on this, the big and small screen, portrayed in varying degrees of success. But I've always been a fan, Devin. Why? I mean, I know why you ask, but why do you ask? <laughs> well, canon was really coming into its own by the mid 80s and of course Menachem and Yoram are both feeling like they can make it big time now they they've worked with Stallone they've created their own franchises they've purchased other franchises such as Death Wish and and the Exterminator and so when Superman 3 turned out to be uh, well, I guess back then they were calling it a, a cinematic turd. I actually think there's some endearing parts to part three, but I think everyone's more or less willing to call it a mistake. But, <laughs> <laughs> but Warner Brothers was not interested in making another Superman after Superman 3. And Canon said, well, what if we do it? <laughs> so the, then we ended up with Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. I, I really don't think there are any other sequels in which the hardcore fans are more in agreement as being the worst of a franchise. It's actually hard to find very much at all that's endearing uh, of within uh, Superman 4. Part of the problem was, as I mentioned before, Canon was releasing almost a movie a week. And as these movies would either become successes or failures from week to week, keeping in mind that they're all very much competing with one another at that kind of level, the budget for Superman 4 kept on getting slashed and slashed. It went from being like almost a $40 million budget to being something like $17 million uh, after they had already secured Christopher Reeve and Gene Hackman. And to secure Christopher Reeve, they had to offer him a writing credit and they had to agree to produce his uh, pet project, uh, Street Smart. But uh, yeah, and they also allowed Christopher Reeve to kind of put whatever kind of messaging he wanted into it. And he chose nuclear warfare for Superman to go after in this one. And I don't know how they got Gene Hackman back at that kind of a budget. I, I would have thought that Gene Hackman would have asked for that full amount, $17 million just for him alone. But I'll, I'll tell you what does work about it. No matter how bad the movie gets, Christopher Reeve never once phoned in a performance as Superman. And he plays the role, even if the special effects are just disgusting in this movie compared to the other films especially. Yeah. Uh, he plays it so straightforward and gives it everything he has a sequence where he's on a double date with Lois Lane as both Clark Kent and Superman and uh, with oh, Mariel Hemingway's characters, the fourth one in that double date. Uh, it, it's such a sitcom trope. The, yep. <laughs> the one person trying to be two people on a double date, uh, but 
Christopher Reeve trying to pull that dumbass plot device off as Superman and Clark was actually really endearing. He actually plays it yeah. uh, as straight as he can. And Gene Hackman is amazing even when he is phony. So with between those two performers, no matter how bad the script is, I, I do think that uh, Superman 4 does have some redeeming value, but it, it's very slim. And it, it did bring down canon more than a few pegs in the film industry. What are your thoughts on Superman 4, James? Um, it's a fucking piece of... Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rutting turd. Um, as a kid, <laughs> I will say this. As a kid, you know, I was excited because even though Solar Man, um, who I... I make, you Nuclear know, Man. Weird, uh, comparisons, but Nuclear Man, excuse me, uh, which I, as a kid, referred to as uh, Shadow Stevens with Lee Press on Nails. I don't know if <laughs> you get that reference. But he was a supervillain, and even though he wasn't a, forgive the, the play on the word, but he wasn't a canon superhero from the, the, you know, the Superman mythology. He was the original creation for the film. I was like, oh, that's cool. Superman actually gets to fight an actual supervillain for once. But then, of course, I, I saw the movie and was you know really depressed um i even as a kid i i, I love the third one um in fact uh superman 3 still features one of the most disturbing film sequences to me it like tra- oh traumatized God, me yes. as a kid the yeah robot? When, the robot yes when she gets put into the wires oh that's still uh, freaky it's, it still freaks me out, but um, I still have the soundtrack uh, to Superman three, so I, I acknowledge it's a bad movie. But seeing Superman drunk, all that, that growing up, that was I thought it was great. And yeah, that, that sequence is did. still great. So people who don't like it can kiss my. But um, what I will say is that you know it was definitely a scenario where even as a kid, you know I wasn't you don't think critically as a kid, as a kid who loved Superman and loved all the movies and was excited to see new Superman. I remember being like pretty bummed out pretty disappointed and again as a kid i didn't really notice the giant deficit in the budget and the really shitty special effects i mean there was some cool as a kid the sequence when he like he puts him in the elevator and swings him around and shoots him to the moon like there were some cool things i guess in it even as a kid before i became very um you know you start thinking things more critically and you know from that mindset uh, i was pretty disappointed and pretty bummed out and when they you know afterwards when you find out they're not going to make any new uh superman movies you're like yeah that's probably for the best that makes yeah. sense <laughs> yeah that's but, uh, you know uh, but i loved you know christopher reeves but yeah it's a it's a smoking turd they should never have been made it goes out on a sour note which was a thing for superhero movies of that era so but yeah, yeah. it's a it's a bummer but it exists so. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see little glimmers of kind of what it might have almost most been apparently there much like the other canon films uh there's a longer cut of this and a lot of the deleted scenes ended up on the dvd and none of them make it really any much more coherent particularly i i have not confirmed this um but i did hear a rumor that there were they were kicking around the idea at one point that this uh this whole nuclear man experiment that lex luther is is going through with was going to end up developing a bizarro superman which would have been the first and only bizarro superman on screen and that could have been interesting if this had even that would as, have been cool actually even yeah. as dumb as this movie was if it was bizarro superman it probably would have had something worth speaking of uh this long after but instead they gave us as you said shadow steeds with lee press on nails and lex luther the greatest criminal mind of our time creates an indestructible creature whose only weakness is nighttime i yeah. just <laughs> i don't know how what that works say? right uh so yeah at this point after this movie failed canon was really in hot water they had spent more than they should have and it was still less than they planned to 
and they really needed something to save their asses. And I'm willing to bet that you can guess what they tried to save their asses with. Yeah. Um, look, as a kid from the 80s, that it was probably the most hyped I'd ever been for a movie at that point. You know, had a lot of excitement going into it. And I will say it holds up better now than my original impression of it. The fact that, I mean, I, I, I'm a fan of the movie. I own the movie. I own a Nostalgia you know, has been fan. more kind to this one than it has been to Superman 4. I'll give it that. Yes, but I'm assuming you're talking about Masters of the Universe. I am talking about I'm, I'm definitely not talking about the Andrew McCarthy classic Mannequin, which canon also produced <laughs> and was which better, is a great movie and yeah, uh, much better than than he-man and the masters <laughs> yes. so here's the thing you know as a kid you wanted to see the he-man that you saw from the toy in his universe and from the cartoon on screen in that in that realm they failed epically but as an adult i appreciate for what it is first off they had some legendary illustrators and they had the greatest french cartoonist of all time jean gerard uh, aka mobius was working on it um william stout who was an amazing illustrator and cartoons done all these amazing you know production design work on all, all sorts of incredible films there's so much about it i actually am a fan of but you know it didn't do well at the time so um one of my favorite things about the masters of the universe movie is uh is skeletor i was a fan of the character from the cartoon you know i was happy to see him on screen what is very surprising is that you know if you were to not know about this movie and be like okay this is the 80s Who's going to play Skeletor opposite Dolph Lundgren? And it's Frank Langella, the amazing actor, Frank Langella, who's had a you know, very impressive career. And one of my favorite things about this movie is that Frank Langella still says it's one of his favorite performances he's ever done. Yep. That he really enjoyed the character once he learned to sort of realize who, what, how to portray the character in this sort of over-the-top thespian, uh, almost Shakespearean kind of way. And he's great in it. He, he's the best thing about the movie. He's the only uh, one that looks like saying, he's having fun. Him and Strickland are the only ones yeah. that look like they're having fun making yeah. this movie. I will say the greatest casting uh, is Meg Foster as Eva Lynn because yes. Jesus Christ, perfect casting. Like Meg Foster's those pale blue eyes. People back then thought she was wearing contacts. She was wearing contacts. Nope. No. That was Meg Foster's brilliant blue eyes, ghostly pale blue eyes. But yeah, she was great in it. You know, it's known for being, uh, ha- you know, having a young Courtney Cox in it. It had a bunch of characters that weren't in the cartoon because smartly at the time, I mean, if you're, if you're in Mattel's shoes, you're having this big movie come out, you don't want to just put in characters that already exist. You want to sell new toys. So instead of having Orko, you had Gwildor. Instead of having Triclops or Trapjaw, you had uh, Sauron and uh, Blade, Blade and, and all these different characters. So they made new, new action figures. But as a kid, you're like, where the shit is Trapjaw? Where is Merman? Where's Triclops? That's exactly and, you know. the problem. It, it, it was the focus group on this had to have been cracked because to me, it feels like if they had done a focus group on children, the market for this movie in 1987 and, and got a list of every single thing that they would want out of a He-Man movie, it seems to me like they had done that for this and then just said, okay, now we're going to do the opposite. They worked against every single thing that people would have wanted in that movie. There's no cringer. Uh, most of the movie takes yep. place on Earth instead of Endor. Uh, you never Eternia. see his mountain. Eternia, sorry. Endor is uh, Ewok, sorry. No worries. I'm mixing my mythologies there. But yeah, you never, there's no Prince Adam, so there's no purpose for the power of Skull and the big transition. Everything that kids loved about that cartoon and about that toy series just yanked out of it for the sake of, eh, they, they like Orko, but you know, we want to give them uh, a new Billy Barty character. No, we didn't want any Billy Barty character. <laughs> 
Nobody wants Billy Barty characters. <laughs> I do now, but uh, yeah, <laughs> Billy Barty, by the way, was one of the original uh, members of Spike Jones and his City Slickers. Uh, if you listen to novelty music, um, so he's oh, been, was he really? Yeah, he was in show business for decades prior to doing this or Foul Play or UHF or any of the things we really know Billy Barty for. Anyways, yeah, I, I just feel like this movie kind of betrayed its own audience, and it. I'm glad we're past the stage where that was possible. I don't think something like Masters of the Universe could happen now. I think a Masters of the Universe movie can and will come out, and I don't know whether oh, it's yeah. going to be any good or not, but it's not going to be as bad as this because this movie exists as a shining beacon of what not to do. Now, that being said, there's more to like than there is in Superman 4. There were some really creative elements to it. Uh, Langella really does nail it as Skeletor. Uh, even though he's different than the the series, but I, I think he is proof that we would have accepted something different from the series had the difference at least been good. I think the difference exactly. in Skeletor was at least good. Other than now, that, again, I will say at the time as a kid, I was like, "That's not Skeletor. Why isn't he purple? Uh, you know, why is it Skeletor?" Like, but you know, as an adult, I would go, "Oh, well, like it's actually a very well done costume and makeup design." Langella is amazing because he's fucking Frank Langella, and you know, he's he's you can tell that he bought into it, which is re- always really important for those kind of movies. But you know, it is one of the things they are doing a movie, and I say this because I'm one of them. But the most awful people in the world are middle-aged nerds who grew up with something because sometimes they they can't divorce themselves or distance themselves from their nostalgia of it yes. uh, so people are shitting on it even though it hasn't been made but um you know i will wait and see yeah i'll but, give it a uh, shot yeah i mean i don't know the kid who's playing him i'm like that was weird casting but again yeah, but, but it's not made for me i i'm i'll have to watch it yeah. objectively and and see what it was but this one the the canon one was made for me and, and i saw it in the theater uh, the yeah. same year that I saw Superman 4. Actually, I think I liked Superman 4 better in hindsight back then. It's it's switched a little now. But I saw them both at the same theater. My dad took me to go see it at that one in, in San Bernardino that eventually became a video mark. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it used to be one really big screen theater. And I saw, yeah, like I said, th- this in Superman 4 the same year at that theater. And I remember being about eight years old. And having it be one of the first things that I knew that something wasn't right about it. I still loved it because I was a kid and my dad took me out to the movies. I wasn't going to tell my dad I didn't like the movie that he took me to. Yeah. But there was a part of me that felt a little cheated even at that age. Like, well, geez, why didn't we get Orko? You know, because he's a major part of the story. Why do we get this little thing that, that drinks barbecue sauce? And, and why, why are they vegetarians on uh, <laughs> Eternia? Yeah. There's nothing when, in the when, cartoon when about become... them being vegetarians. <laughs> uh, now I'm nitpicking on purpose, but you you get my point. Yes. And, and again, I think that they could have made those decisions to make it different had they made decisions to make it better. <laughs> but, but they didn't. They made it worse. Well, you know, one thing, though, that I feel like, you know, there's there's like fan service now. You know, we, we pay a lot of attention to, you know, what, uh, you know, fan communities demand and what, you know, and like we, you know, got to please the, the, the core audience and the diehards. But that doesn't always make a good movie. Like, it, in fact, oftentimes it doesn't. Yeah. And as a, as a giant nerd and a guy who's been in different fandoms for decades, at least I'm adult and can say like, yeah, that's not the exact translation of the source material but 
this is a movie and we have to judge it as a film. And um, unfortunately, on both those regards, most people don't hold Master of the Universe up as a high regard. But again, I, I, I rewatch it pretty consistently. I find it fun. I like what they did. I mean, the movie had a lot of, you know, there's a lot of production, you know, they lost their all of their money before they could film the final sequence. Which was supposed to be this huge epic sword fight between Skeletor and He-Man, and they lost all the money, so they basically had to do everybody to work for free, and they had to cut this giant fight sequence down to a much smaller sequence. And Franklin Jella had to do the fighting himself because they didn't couldn't have a stuntman. He was in this unbelievably ornate costume at that point when Skeletor basically gets the yeah, and he's they're fighting on wet like stone and he's like he can barely stand up let alone have this believable sword fight so there's a lot of like you know the movie suffered from some poor uh, or some bad luck or whatever but i still like it but it did it was one of the final nails in the coffin there was a lot of money spent on the rights and advertising and it didn't do well it blew up in their face and it did was sort of one of the nails in the coffin uh, so to speak for yes. golan and globus really thought that they had a firecracker here and it blew up in their hand yes <laughs> the only thing that blew up worse for them because they put millions of dollars into it and you, there are other podcasts. There's actually another podcast called Best Movies Never Made, uh, which they do a four-part episode on uh, the various versions of Spider-Man that existed before Sam Raimi ever got it. Yep. And uh, at least an episode and a half, maybe even two full episodes were just on Canon's version of Spider-Man. They had bought the rights for, yep. I think it was something like 25, it was about $250,000. Uh, so a quarter of a million dollars they bought, Spy- or they licensed Spider-Man. Rumor has it too that Marvel at that point said, hey, for another $20,000, some really low figure, we'll throw in the rest of Marvel for you. You can make whatever you want. And Canon was like, nah, we're going to stick with Spider-Man. Obviously would have saved yeah. the company had they There's- taken that lo- incredible lowball offer. Uh, but no, they just took Spider-Man and uh, it was originally pitched as a Toby Hooper movie in typical canon fashion. It was in all the trades. They made posters for it. They made a mini trailer yep. for it. And then it moved on to being a Joseph Zito film. But the Toby Hooper version, this is just worthy of mention here. The reason why Toby Hooper was making it was because they wanted to make a horror movie. Golan and Globus knew so little about Spider-Man as a character that they thought he was like the Wolfman. And so yeah. they were going to make a movie in which a, a teenager morphs into a spider man and yeah similar to the fly <laughs> yes yes and so that's why it was gonna be toby hooper and then when they realized stan lee went through the freaking ceiling when he heard about this and uh insisted they rewrite it and that's when it became a joseph zito project and at one point tom cruise was going to be spider-man or was it right. peter parker lauren bacall was going to be aunt may bob hoskins was going to be dr octopus and stan lee himself was going to be j jonah jameson uh and this would which through, i thought would have been great yeah, it would have been. Uh, at least would have been interesting. And yeah. it, ne- it never really, it never got off the ground. Uh, they, of course, had planned to do a Masters of the Universe Part 2 as well, because they had banked on this movie being their biggest movie ever. But when those two things fell through, Masters of the Universe and Spider-Man, for kind of what I would consider to be the last really well-known theatrical canon movie, uh, they incorporated elements of the costumes and the sets of Master of the Universe 2 and Spider-Man into the Van Damme film yep. Cyborg, which is still called Masters of the Universe Cyborg. 2 in some listings. Which is, you know, I, I I heard when I learned of that, you know, years ago, I, I was a fan of the the, the the film Cyborg, the Jean-Claude post-apocalyptic uh, Cyborg movie, geniusly called Cyborg. I still this day cannot fathom how that script 
I mean, it must have been one really dark sequel, but uh, <laughs> but it's pretty fascinating to 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 know that the you know how studios will do that. They'll basically they'll have a script and you know have to make one for one reason or another have to make a decision to change it to you know keep making the film and. It's like you said, if you watch the movie Cyborg, I'm like, I don't know. I mean, in small ways, you're like, I guess I could see how this was going to be a sequel for Mass of the Universe. But, you know, it's a very uh, bizarre movie. But yeah, it was like it was the last didn't do well. Movie did not do well. Didn't do anything for Van Damme outside of just making sure that he was on the USA Network, you know, every other weekend (laughs) right alongside Beastmaster. But of course, you know, like I said, as a kid. I was a fan. In fact, the, the the main villain in that movie still kind of freaks me out. But yeah, it's it was a sad demise. They really, you know, overshot. You know, one thing though you didn't mention is for the longest time, it wasn't rumor because he's gone on the record of saying he wanted to do it, but it was actually James Cameron wanted to do um, Spider-Man and fought for it. He had the script. He, did. Um, he had a scriptment, and yeah. uh, that's covered in this podcast, The Best Movies Never Made as well. And it goes really into detail uh, into his scriptment. So you would have gotten an idea. His was going to be DiCaprio. And I think he was yep. there at the end of... See, when, when Golem and Globus split up as partners, Golem kept canon and kept doing, you know, American Ninja 5 and, and direct yep. video Chuck Norris movies and things like that. Um, uh, Menachem Golan went off and started a company uh, starting uh, called uh, 21st Century. He took Spider-Man with him. And that was at that point where I believe James Cameron got involved. So James Cameron was involved in the very end of Menachem Golem's ownership of, of Spider-Man, but stayed on after he left and was really kind of there for the beginning of the Columbia period of Spider-Man, which which still exists, the Sony Columbia, period, uh, which eventually became Sam Raimi, uh, and then on to what it has become now an official part of the Marvel Universe and all of this. But James Cameron's version was a lot more interesting and, and uh, closer to the comic book. Uh, it was also going to be a Dr. Octopus story, I believe, and uh, was supposed to be Leonardo DiCaprio pre-Titanic yeah. as, as our friendly neighborhood web slinger but Menachem was able to produce that direct-to-video version of captain america out of this deal too so that was probably an idea of the kind of thinking that you would have gotten on a canon spider-man exactly which would have been a smoking hot turd uh it's more fun to talk about how it didn't get made than it probably ever would have been to watch it Oh, without a doubt. I mean, unless it was, I mean, if it was as bad as Captain America, it, it would have maybe had been fun for a different, um, yeah. uh, God, what a, what a movie. Um, but yeah, and that's the thing is, you know, they just didn't have the budget. They didn't, couldn't really spend the money that it would take to bring those characters to life, especially at the time, um, but really before, you know, where CGI has ended up and everything. So, and but, you know, like, I think you they, need they a movie star for this movie. Get me Ronnie Cox. Like, it's. <laughs> 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 so nothing I, I like Ronnie Cox, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I will say, you know, there's there's a ton of movies we didn't get to talk about. Uh, yeah, that, you know, probably the pen- penitentiary movies, Firewalker. I uh, enjoy here on the terror, which is uh, was my I think at the end was one of my mom's favorite films, and I actually really like it. It's it's a little different from the normal Chuck Norris cop movies it's a little different but yeah it's you know there's some other movies but you know it, delta obviously, force in chuck yep. norris on a motorcycle with rocket launchers on it you know on the sides yeah which is still <laughs> yep god 
That's what I'm saying. How do you, again, I wouldn't want to have a, a single conversation with Chuck Norris, but I, you know, he was my childhood, <laughs> but yeah, you know, like always, you know, I'm sure, you know, people out there, you know, could say, Hey, why don't you bring up, you know, messenger of death or, you know, any other movies that, you know, uh, from their film library, but obviously we, this has already been, we did not want part three electric boogaloo. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, but yeah, this was really fun, man. Like I said, this is definitely uh, these movies on here were really important to me growing up. And still to this day, I, you know, I've literally watched kickboxer three days ago, not because of this podcast, just because I wanted to see it. But yeah, it's definitely a thing. Like we could probably revisit, but it's, it's funny because even outside of the films themselves, it was a very interesting history to it enough. Like I said, that there's a, a separate podcast all about it. There's a, a feature link documentary about it, a, a book written about it. A couple of books now. Oh, a couple books there. You guys stand corrected. Obviously, if you're if you are of a certain age and you grew up with those movies, you know they you know, probably at least a handful of those movies meant to you. Um, if you're a fan of you know action films and stuff, they, they definitely had a huge impact on that uh, genre in the '80s. But yeah, this was fun, Devin. Um, you know, hopefully the next time. one the one parter. But uh, yeah, let's pick something that's that's got a <laughs> a much smaller filmography attached to it. I, I caught to this. This was my bad. I thought it would be fun to do canon films and was not thinking about how broad i mean we still didn't even touch the 60s and the 70s and the direct-to-video stuff in the 90s which which actually does have a gem or two to it but i i think we wanted to focus rightfully so on what was really the the best time for canon films where they were really a force in the movie industry they were something that uh, everyone was keeping an eye on Uh, whether they liked them or not they they had to see well when's the next canon film coming out they were they were competitors to the major studios, the, the ones that they weren't partners with occasionally. So uh, and and a genuine star maker for for people like John Clown Van Dam and Chuck Norris and uh, Norris, yeah. uh, Michael Dudikoff. Michael Dudikoff, who I, I still say <laughs> he's underrated even in this podcast. That's right. <laughs> Dudikoff should have gotten more attention, but uh, but then again, Canon should have given him more attention. So yeah, I, I, this was great. Maybe someday when some of these things are less out of print, we can do an episode on those elite films that we talked about and, and get into the Cassavetes and the Altman of Canon. But uh, for now, I, I think we've spoken our piece. We've said about as much as we can. And once again, if anyone wants to deep dive on these or hear about some of the movies we didn't mention, check out the Canon Canon with Frank Garcia Hale and Jeff Garlock, a really good podcast where you can find uh the same places where you find us, uh, Den of Sin on Spotify, Apple Podcast. We are now on YouTube at this point. Uh, we're, we're picking up some steam. So you can find us anywhere that you, you listen to podcasts. And you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, under Den of Sin, C-I-N. Please do go on and, and correspond with us. We're, we're getting a little lonely on our social media, I'll be honest, which is mostly my fault. I just kind of post when we have new episodes. I, I will promise to be more engaged with you, our fans, if you promise to be a little more engaged with us because we, we would like to be a little bit more present there. Uh, anything you'd like to close out with, James? No, just uh, you know, Devin. As always, it's really f- uh, it's it's always a pleasure to record these with you. Uh, you're a man of uh, taste and knowledge. But most most importantly, I just want to say, uh, if you haven't seen the movie Cobra, rent it, buy it, do whatever you have to do, sell your mom's meds, um, <laughs> watch that movie. Because if you don't, uh, I, I just I I can't. I won't be able. To, I feel like I was put on this earth to spread the good word, the gospel of. Uh, Sylvester Stallone's Cobra. So go watch Cobra. Agreed. I I 100% agree. Cobra needs to be seen, folks. Uh, And my picks would probably be uh, 52 Pickup and Runaway Train, if you take anything from this. Oh, you mean the good movies? (laughs) Hey, Cobra's one of the good movies, man. I'm telling you. 
Uh, I, I, lo- it, I mean, I agree, obviously. Hey, look, between Cobretti and Robert Loggia, I choose Cobretti. So it's <laughs> good. There you go. That's the, that's the guy you've redeemed yourself. Okay. I can continue to record this podcast with you now. <laughs> right. It was touch and go there, but you've redeemed yourself. And uh, as they apparently say in Eternia, uh, it was a good journey. Is that what good they journey say? to you? Good journey. I believe James. So, yes. Good journey, Devin. <laughs> and good journey. All of you. We'll see you next time.